John chapter 7. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for bringing your saints together once again on another beautiful Lord's Day. I pray that this time is edifying, but also pray that this time is challenging. Holy Spirit, speak through me, move through me. I'm only the means by which you will convey your truth to your saints. I am nobody this morning. Lord, I pray that your saints will be able to comprehend and to look within themselves. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. <clears throat> the word skepticism means an attitude of doubting the truth of a claim or a statement. Has anyone ever heard that word of skepticism before? Skeptic. Now that is slowly becoming the dominant school of thought in America today. 50 years ago, and those who are much older can attest to this, 50 years ago it would seem like everyone believed in God. Everyone believed that Jesus was God. And everyone believed that the Bible was the inerrant, infallible Word of God. I remember growing up with friends who weren't saved, who weren't following Christ, who didn't put their faith in Christ. However, they had deep respect for Jesus. They never questioned if Jesus was truly God or not. I remember driving by churches on Sunday and seeing the parking lots jam-packed with people. Twelve o'clock was the usual time churches would dismiss and restaurants being jam-packed with people who are just getting out of service. However, today there's a mixed bag of who's in the restaurants. Over 40 and 50 years ago, malls, restaurants, and local stores were closed on Sundays to observe the Lord's Day and also to rest from their hard labor. However, today that's not the case. Sundays nowadays are filled with people who stayed home, who go out and catch an early movie, who will go out of town, will go visit family and friends, run errands that they didn't get a chance to do over the week, go to the gym, or my favorite, which would be go eat at your favorite restaurant before the Baptist folk come. In schools now, the rise of skepticism is also prevalent. Growing up, the class would stand and give the Pledge of Allegiance. I remember I pledged allegiance to the flag, the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's what schools stood on. In 1954, when President Eisenhower added the words, under God, to the pledge, he stated, from this day forward, the millions of our schools Children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse that to get the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. Our nation somewhat was founded under us coming together, knowing that we are being ruled by God. However, that has now changed. 
in an effort to take God out of the pledge, people have said such things like this. The pledge is one of the allegiance to our republic, not allegiance to the God or any religion. The Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts said that the Pledge of Allegiance does not discriminate against atheists because the words under God represent a patriarch, not a religious exercise. So they have taken the words God and they replaced it with America or your patriarch or the nation. So the nation is God. The view of Jesus has stayed, for the most part, pretty consistent. Nearly 92 of Americans today believe that Jesus was an actual historical figure who lived and walked on earth. However, 52% of America, which is half, believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, with 24% believing that Jesus actually committed sins like you and I do every day. 56 of Americans believe that Jesus was God, while only one quarter say that he was only a religious figure, a spiritual leader like Muhammad or Buddha. The remaining 18% say that they don't know if Jesus was divine or not. Jesus has been the main target amongst skeptics today. Evolutionary biologist and famed atheist Richard Dawkins said, Jesus would have been an atheist if he had known what we know today. Meaning if Jesus knew all of the scientific evidence that we have discovered and the evolutionary process that we go through from goo to human flesh, then maybe he wouldn't even believe his own claims. Atheist Sam Harris said, Jesus Christ, who, as it turns out, was born of a virgin, cheated death, and rose bodily into the heavens. Now he can be eaten in the form of a cracker. People like Christopher Hitchens would often say in his lectures that the idea of Jesus dying for people's sins is not worthy of being worshipped. And Christ dying on the cross is merely cosmic child abuse. Disrespect is all around us this day. Events like the virgin birth, the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross, even Jesus living on earth, are now being put into question and are being seen as merely myths and old religious folk tales. The question of who Jesus is is often debated amongst critics and skeptics today. For some people, it's hard to believe that this man claimed to be God. For some people, it's hard to believe that this man performed miracles, casted out demons. He spoke about himself like no one in history ever has. That this man was beaten, crucified, died on the cross, but yet was risen for other people's justification? And he did all that in 33 years? That's what skeptics are saying this day about Christ. But it didn't start in this day and age, as we know. In fact, Jesus encountered many skeptics while he was here on earth. Questions about who this man is. This man from Galilee. This is what dominated Christ's life and what will dominate Christ's life up to his crucifixion. The Jewish leaders were skeptical about Christ and his claims. Calling him a blasphemer. Saying his origins are from Satan. Many called Jesus insane and he said he's dividing people. 
Last week, I presented to you Jesus, a man of division. Today, I present to you Jesus, a man from heaven. So far, the story in the story of Jesus, he's been in Galilee for about a year, preaching, teaching, doing miracles, and discipling the twelve. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand, which was a week-long celebration that each Jewish man had to attend. So Jesus' brothers started arguing and urging, I should say, Jesus to go to Jerusalem, to go to this feast and to show these people who he actually is. Saying in verse 3 and 4, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Them acting more like image consultants rather than followers of Christ. Wanting their big brother to perform his miracles on a more larger and grander scale. They wanted the brother to be a political leader that the Messiah was supposed to be. A person who was a wartime hero. But their motivation wasn't to see Israel be restored. But their motivation was to see their brother give them another reason to believe. Because they didn't believe. They wanted to see if this man was truly worth following. I mean, in chapter 6, he fed... 20,000 people. But all he had left to show for it was 12 disciples and some brothers. Jesus, knowing their intentions, responds with a rebuke in verses 6 and 7. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus was on a divine schedule. He wasn't going to go on the strength of his brother's suggestions, but rather on God's divine purposeful time. Also, his brothers did not understand what was awaiting him at this feast. Deep, deep hatred and division and hostility was the environment that Jesus was about to walk into. And this hatred would not stop until he's put on a cross. It's sort of like if you were going to a party and the party is pretty much about you. But there's people at that party that you know want to kill you. There's also people at that party saying that you're a good man because of your miracles. But there's also people at that party saying that you are a bad person because of what you're doing. You're dividing the people. That's the environment that Christ is walking into now. So what does he do? He sends his brothers. And we see at the feast that Christ was the topic of whispers. Everyone was afraid to speak about Christ for fear of the Pharisees and what they will do. Some were saying he's a good man, while others saying, no, he leads people astray. But the Pharisees have already made up their mind of who Jesus was, and now they're ready to take action. So this morning I have two headings for us to consider. The first is, we will see in verses 14 through 18... Jesus and his confrontation with his skeptics. And we will see from 19 to verse 24, Jesus and his confrontation with the hypocrites. Let's stand for the reading of the word. John chapter 7, verse 14 to 24 reads, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. 
The Jews marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If not the, if the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. You may be seated. So, verse 14 The beginning of verse 14 reads, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. As we remember, the brothers wanted him to go to the feast. Jesus says, I'm not going to go yet. But now, it's time to go. And he shows up at the middle of this feast, okay? It's an eight-day thing. He shows up in the middle of it. Now, there was three feasts that... Every Jewish man had to attend yearly. There was in the spring, the Passover. There was the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And then there was the one in the fall, which was this one. Um, And and this one was probably the most uh, fun and livid time. It was a great celebration of what God did to the people of Israel um, while they were wandering. It's a week-long celebration. And here we have Jesus showing up unexpectedly in the middle of the feast. Remember, when his brothers went to the feast, the Jews were asking, where is he? So now, he shows up. When maybe all the tension has died down. And they're probably saying, ah, he's not going to come. Here walks in Jesus. Thus fulfilling Ezekiel 34. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Later to the prophet Malachi, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant In whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. These two prophecies are being fulfilled when Jesus showed up at this feast. That's what happened when Jesus shows up. Prophecies are being fulfilled. The shepherd had come himself to seek his sheep that had been scattered all abroad. The Lord himself had suddenly come to his temple to rescue his people from darkness. That's what's happening here. Jesus, knowing the hostility and hatred awaiting him, he fearlessly began to do the one thing that everyone hated about him. Began to teach. The very thing that his brothers 
more than likely did not want him to do. Remember at the end of John 6, many of the disciples just packed their bags and left. Because Jesus' teachings were just too hard. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. So they left. It's also the very thing that's been getting him in the most trouble amongst the Jewish leaders. We see in verse 15 the first critics and the first skeptics of Christ. And they question who he is and where he's come from. The people marveled at Jesus saying in verse 15, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus' knowledge of the scripture was, of course, supernatural. The people were amazed by someone who has never studied at any of the rabbinical centers or under any of the great rabbis of the day, but could expound, exegete, exposit, and apply the Old Testament scriptures better than any of them. Even at an early age, Jesus' understanding of the scriptures were light years ahead of everyone else's. We read in Luke 2, 41-52, Jesus and his parents were at the Feast of Passover. And their parents just leave the Passover. And about halfway during their journey, they noticed that Jesus was not with them. So, after searching for Jesus for three days, Luke records... This little boy, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? But did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Mind you, this little boy is 12 years old at the time. At 12 years old, people were already amazed at this little boy named Jesus. And as he grew in stature and in wisdom, people became more amazed. Of this man. In Matthew 7, after Jesus finished preaching, it reads The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Luke 4 32, we read, They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Matthew 3 54, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where has this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And and Mark 11, 18 shows how much authority and power Christ's words have. It says the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. The people were amazed by Jesus' words. And the power that he seemed to generate as he spoke. We know of great preachers now. Paul Washer and John Piper. Go back to the old days. Charles Spurgeon. But none can hold a candle next to Christ. Every word had power and meaning. No sentence was wasted. He never stumbled on his words. His thoughts were profound and his message was clear. So Jesus mesmerized the people, asking, 
how does this man have learning when he's never studied anything? But you notice how the people kept everything at a surface level when it came to Jesus. They marveled at his miracles, right? They wanted to see more miracles and they were willing to follow him for those miracles. But very few said that this man is worthy of following to the end. In the same way, they marveled at Jesus' words. They couldn't believe how this man can speak without any formal training. Yet, very few believed actually what he was saying. We see in both cases the miracles and the teachings. They marveled with their eyes and with their minds, but they didn't allow Jesus' words to penetrate their heart. They kept everything at a base. They kept everything at a surface level. They were impressed with him and his miracles and his knowledge. But it never touched them spiritually. Because they didn't allow it to. Much like today. Many will say Jesus was a great man and he did great things and he's worthy of being following because he was a great moralist. But we'll completely shut out the idea that, no, this man is the only way. They keep everything at a distance when it comes to Christ. Our pastor had the same problem, I remember. Many would say, this man has a gift of speaking and teaching. And, And my, how he can put words together. It must have been passed down by his father. But I can't attend his church. He's too young to lead a congregation. Sure, he can preach, but what experiences in life does this man have to validate what he's saying? Much like these crowds and much like the people who used to attend this church who stopped going to this church on the strength of this man only being 35. They would marvel at at Jesus from their high wall but they wouldn't allow any truth to come in he's a great man but but he's not worthy of of giving it all up for he's a great speaker but come on he's only 30 he can't teach me anything so what do we have here we have tradition coming into the mix Much like these crowds and much like the people, they marvel from a distance. It didn't lead them to say, it didn't lead them to say that I need to come under the leadership and care of a man who is worthy of following. And just like Christ, the crowds did not find Jesus to be worthy of following. But my, can that boy do miracles? And my, can that boy Preach a sermon. In the crowd's minds, there was only two options. Either this man has a master's degree in the Old Testament, or this man is teaching his own opinion. It was common at the time for the rabbis when they taught to quote other famous rabbis, other teachers to validate their teachings. Just like if I was to come up here 
and you guys are uh, uh, all fond of Pastor Antonio. And I would come up here and just quote Pastor Antonio. Just to validate what I'm saying. That's what rabbis and other rabbis did. However, Jesus only referenced one outside source to validate his teachings. In verse 16, we see, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So we see here, Jesus first rebukes the crowd. Revealing to them their sinfulness and their depravity. If any of you were willing to do God's will, then you would know if my teaching is either my own opinion or it's from an outside source. There's three things going on here. Number one, when Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, this is a general call. He's calling out his sheep. This sheep will hear his voice. If anyone's will is to do God's will, but we will learn about that in two weeks. I'll save that. The second thing that's happening is he's rebuking the people who fail to see him for who he is. If you were doing God's will, then you would have recognized my teaching. You would have known if you were doing God's will. And then also, number three, he's calling out their idea of what they think God's will was, which was to obey the law. The people had it terribly wrong. See, while others were marveling at Jesus' words and ooing and awing over his great learning ability, in verse 18, he deflects their praise and he points it to the Father. The rabbi's authority and their teachings always pointed to other rabbis. And by this, their own ego would be boosted up. They would receive praise, receive honor. Jesus says in Matthew 23, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Verse 18, Jesus goes on to say, The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who he sent is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus makes it clear in verse 18 that unlike the Pharisees, he did not come for his own praise and for his own honor, but rather the praise and the glory of the Father. John 6 makes it clear, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Remember in John 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is very different from what Jesus' brothers thought the Messiah would be. This man is supposed to be the king and take over by physical force, but instead... Jesus is confronting the Jewish people for their foolish human pride and their love for human praise. He's teaching them a lesson here. And more importantly, he's teaching us at RBC a lesson here. Because self-exaltation is so natural to our human nature, isn't it? 
We like praise and we like to be patted on the back and we love to be made much of. We want people to recognize something in us so that we can receive praise and we can receive some type of accolations. I was at a makeup show yesterday and I was so surprised how everyone is so fixated and how our culture is so fixated on self-popularity. This is why Facebook was offended. Social networks like MySpace and Instagram and Twitter. Other than a place to connect with old and new and present friends, it's a chance for regular nobodies to gain status of popularity by the means of taking selfies and videos. If you're over 50, tune me out. This is what the culture is now. Me, me, me. Christ is saying, it's not about me. The one from heaven, God in the flesh is saying, it's not about me. Lessing himself and making his father greater. Brothers and sisters, let us be challenged this morning to lessen ourselves. To deflect our praise to Christ. For Christ to be made great in all things that we do. This is what drove Jonathan Edwards to write, God's purpose for my life was that I have one passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory. And these things are one passion. It's what caused Spurgeon to say you will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed your glorifying in yourself. The model for our lives must be one like John the Baptist when he said to Jesus, I must decrease. He must increase. Or like what our pastor says before every message, let the people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you, Lord. This is the model we should live by. This is the attitude we should have. I felt like telling all these little girls, the minute you start realizing that the earth does not revolve around you and start understanding that you were made to glorify God, then the easier you'll be able to cope with not being liked, having acne, not be able to For my makeup girls out there, blend the right way. (laughs) Tragedies, heartbreaks, trials. But the good times in your life will be so much more satisfying when your aim is to do God's will and to glorify God and to be made much of Him. Let us model Jesus Christ's example that we see here. So Jesus answers his critics. He questions their idea of what it means to do God's will. He deflects their praise and directs it to the Father. Now let's move on and look at the second heading, the confrontation with the hypocrites. After exposing the crowd's unwillingness to do God's will and to accept him as the source of all truth, he has now set his eyes on his second biggest enemy, the first being Satan, the Pharisees. And he exposes them for who they are. He exposes their hypocrisy. He says in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? What a bold statement to say. 
fully aware of their motives. He looks the people, he looks at the people who want to kill him straight in the face, and he rebukes them. He adds more wood to this ever-burning hatred that the Pharisees have for him. This is what made Jesus' teachings such a hard pill to swallow because he exposed people's unrighteousness. It's also what got him in the most trouble amongst the Pharisees and scribes. And here it's no different. Here he stands in front of the most powerful men in all Jerusalem and he rebukes them. They thought that they were the very definition of what it means to keep the law. The very thing that you live to do. The very thing you Pharisees pride yourself on doing. The very thing that you use to bring people down and to beat people up with is the very thing that you fail to keep every single day. Yeah. No one can keep the law. James 2.10 makes it clear, For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. Mm-hmm. Simply put, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. The law that was given under the Mosaic Covenant was never intended to save anyone by perfect obedience, but rather to reveal man's sinfulness. This is why Paul said in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was supposed to drive people to the mercy seat of God. To offer up repentance and plead for grace. It was never intended to keep, but to point to your depravity. To shame you, to sadden you. For you to ask yourself, is there any way I could be made righteous? Is there any way that I may be justified in front of a holy God? Because I can't do it. It's those people who who are saying these things and who are pleading out to God. Helplessly crying stands the one who not only kept the law, but fulfilled the law on the behalf of all those he, he has loved before the foundation of the world. And if you place your faith in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, you will be justified before a holy God and his perfect righteousness and obedience will be credited to your account. Amen. To some, that's old news, right? You might have heard that many of times. But saints, if that does not still send chills down your body and emotions to rise up within you, then you fail to see how much of a failure you were and how much of a mighty Savior Christ is. Jesus tells the Pharisees that none of them can keep the law. And then then he does something very shocking. He exposes what they've been plotting all along. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus, understanding that a price is on his head, he knows exactly what the Pharisees have been playing this whole time. The crowd, being so blinded to the Pharisees' motives, they respond and say, but wait a minute, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Notice how the Pharisees didn't say one thing, but the crowds did. The people being so unaware of what's going on, they ask, you're the miracle boy. You're, you have great learning. How, who wants to kill you? You're crazy. You must have a demon. 
Why would anyone want to kill you? Although in six months, when they will all show up at the next feast, which is the Passover, the very ones who said, who would want to kill you, will be the ones screaming, crucify him, crucify him. They will be screaming for Christ's blood. They will be the ones seeking to kill him. Now, what's hanging over this conversation between Jesus and the Jews is what Jesus did in John chapter 5. And you remember what, what Christ did in John chapter 5? He healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. You remember that? Well, the Pharisees also remember that too. And they're actually pretty ticked off that he did that. Because he did it on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was... A day of rest, right? And no work was supposed to be done that day. That's the situation that's now going to be talked about from verses 21 to 24. Verse 21 to 24 reads, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign that one was covenantally joined to God's physical people, which was the nation of Israel. The law required all male children to be circumcised on the eighth day. This practice goes back to Abraham and Uh, Genesis chapter 17. But what happens when the eighth day of circumcision lands on the Sabbath? What do you do? There's no work that's supposed to be done on the Sabbath, right? But yet the law requires every male to be circumcised on the eighth day. You're in a dilemma there. Do you rest or do you circumcise? That's where Jesus is getting at when he says, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So what are you supposed to do? Do you complete the Sabbath rest? Or do you work to fulfill the law? In both cases, you're fulfilling the law. But you're in a big dilemma. But now he's going to expose their hypocrisy. If, any, if, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? That's case closed. James White says inconsistency is a testament to a failed argument. The Pharisees are inconsistent in their argument. They're angry with Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, which was considered work, but they also circumcised Little boys on the Sabbath. Isn't that considered work? Their hypocrisy blinded them. They didn't see by them trying to obey the law. They ended up breaking the law. They weren't lawbreakers. I mean, they weren't law keepers. They were lawbreakers. Also, Christ reveals the Pharisee's human heart. Think about this. A healing of a man who was paralyzed for 38 years didn't even move them. Mm. They didn't care. Mm. All they cared about was 
No, you broke the Sabbath rest. Jesus here is saying, I did something far more greater than circumcision. And because of that, you want to kill me? He argues from the lesser to the greater here. By not reinterpreting the law, but fulfilling the law of what the law was meant to do. To bring the renewal and repentance and redemption to God's people. However, the Pharisees were, were so blinded by their hypocrisy. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 23, the Pharisees and the scribes had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say these things and they don't do them. They, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Then he goes on to give a woe, speaking of how their insides are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness and calling them serpents and broad of vipers and, and, and ending with how will you escape hell? I hope you see the boldness of Christ here and how he relentlessly exposed hypocrisy and human sinfulness. Let us not be like these Pharisees who are out for their own glory the complete opposite of who Jesus was. They thought that they could keep the law and follow, it to, and follow it to the T, thinking good deeds might find them favor in sight of God. Well, get this, at this very moment, God in the flesh is having a conversation with them. And he's telling them, all those things that you've been doing and trying to do, you don't do. <clears throat> We have Pharisees still till this day. We have some in the Word of Faith movement who, instead of the long robes, now have flashy suits. Who have nice cars. Who are lovers of money, lovers of themselves. But we also have Pharisees in our own camp. They have since traded in their long robes for a Calvinism badge of honor. Instead of using the law as a big club to beat people up with, they use Calvinism, reform theology, the doctrines of grace, whatever you want to call it, to mock people, to shame people, to discourage people. Instead of beating people up with the law, they strangle people with their doctrines. The law was to reveal man's sinfulness. And their failure to obey God. Likewise, the doctrines of grace are intended to reveal our human nature outside of Christ and our unwillingness to serve God and to come to Christ. Both are to lead us to a dependence on someone who obeyed and fulfilled the law on our behalf. A person who bore our sins and who was raised for our justification. They call Calvinism the great pride crushers. But now they're seen as the great, the great pride puffers. Wow. I'm a prime example of someone who believed that I was a super Christian just because I was a Calvinist. Like the Pharisees who believed they had special privileges because they were of the Jewish race, therefore their father was Abraham. I too believe I had special privileges because God had elected me. 
and he had predestined me. And I can explain that pretty well. I would shame people. I would mock people who didn't hold the views that I did or who were unable to grasp the tulip as quickly as I thought they should have or as quickly as I did. I, like many do, treated Calvinism as an end unto itself. Instead of understanding that Calvinism is a window by which we see God more clearly and more grand and more gloriously than ever before. I say all that to say this. Don't be like the Pharisees who are so fixated on obeying the law and neglecting the God who gave them the law. Brothers and sisters, focus on being mastered by Christ. Instead of, being master, instead of mastering Reformed theology. Yes. Know what Christ says. Yes. Not what Calvin said. Right. Yes. Master Paul. Yes. Not Spurgeon. Yes. Know what's in this book. Yes. <clears throat> and may we live by that. Yes. May we be examples in our lives. The same example that the Pharisees never were. May we give grace and patience and mercy and kindness and gentleness to people. May we help them along the way. The same grace that was given to you. Let us not treat our Calvinism like the law. But it should bring us to our knees in awe of the God who loved, elected, died, drew, and now is preserving us till the end of time. Jesus concludes by saying, and we will conclude was saying, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. Mm. Jesus is telling them, hey guys, think critically about what you're saying. Think critically about what you're accusing me of. And I think when you do that, you will understand that what I am doing is right. It's an act of kindness. It's okay to do these things on the Sabbath. In closing this morning, let us remember the gracious God that we serve who didn't just leave us in our natural state when we were skeptics and critics and, right. and so forth, unbelievers. Yes. But by his grace and great love, he rescued us. Amen. We are no longer like the crowds who marveled at Jesus' words from a distance and his miracles from a distance, but we are now disciples who preach those same words of Christ. Amen. We don't ask, where did this man get this great learning? His words are so powerful. We recite those words wherever we go. Jesus said in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Let us praise God this Lord's Day for changing and rearranging our human will. A will that was a slave to our sinful desires, unwilling and unwanting to follow Christ. But like the Bible says so many times, but God... And his grace and his love has changed our selfish and sinful will to his will, to God's will. Let us this morning reflect on the glory of God and how we must strive in all things to make that glory be known and seen as bright as possible. May we recite every morning and throughout the day, resolution number one by Jonathan Edwards, that I will do all that I think and say to the glory of God. And take into consideration, and not take into consideration, my own comfort, profit, or pleasure. 
Let us examine ourselves before the Lord's table this morning and ask what areas in our life are we saying but not doing like the Pharisees? What doctrines in my life am I preaching and condemning people with, but I'm not practicing myself? Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's reading the word. And finally, let us live a life the way Christ did. Who came not to be served, but to serve. Allow us to remember the words of Paul, who says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Or, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, RBC, in Christ, who, though was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God. Such a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. May we strive our daily lives to be humble and meek like Christ did, knowing that we are image bearers of God and we must display that image in all that we do. In an age of skepticism and criticism, Brothers and sisters, don't be alarmed at the arguments that you will hear and the people that will try to discredit your faith and, and talk badly about your Jesus. Remember, Christ is now and has always been seated on the throne. Amen. And he's put all things under his feet. Yes. Yes. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Yes. So that at that name... Of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, may we stand.